The following podcast contains explicit language. It is Tuesday, May 30th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist with me, Leon Nafok, filling in for Mike Pesca. I'll tell you right up front, the first couple times I took a pass at drafting this intro, I tried my hardest to channel Pesca. As a devoted listener of The Gist, I know and love his signature cadence, his speed, and his mastery with illuminating digressions. And so I tried to match the Pesca style, only to find out what I already knew, which that there's only one Mike Pesca, and I am not him. So, I'm afraid you're stuck today with regular me, a reporter at Slate who writes about the Department of Justice. On today's show, though, I'll be revisiting an old beat of mine, the book publishing industry, as part of a conversation with David Rosenthal, who worked for years as the head of the flagship imprint at Simon & Schuster, before starting his own imprint at Penguin called Blue Rider Press. You're going to love David. He speaks softly but swears a whole lot and has as much insight as anyone into the hyper-competitive, high-stakes world of agents and editors fighting over new book proposals and trying to guess what people are going to want to read about two, three, four years into the future. But before we get to that, I would like to draw your attention first to a lovely tidbit that appeared in the Washington Post on Monday. The story was about Trump's habit of constantly demeaning and ridiculing members of his staff in public settings. There was a time he denied Sean Spicer, a devout Catholic, a chance to meet the Pope. The time he said in front of the UN Security Council that if people didn't think UN Ambassador Nikki Haley was doing a good job, she could be replaced. There was a time he forced Steve Bannon to give up the seat during an Oval Office meeting so the junior staffer could sit closer to the president. Now, Trump's defenders are quoted in the Post story as saying that this kind of thing is actually good for morale, that Trump likes to needle and prod his people because it makes them feel like part of the family. But the most memorable response to the story's central thesis, that basically Trump is a massive jerk, came from the White House spokeswoman Hope Hicks, who sent the Post the following statement. I quote, President Trump has a magnetic personality and exudes positive energy, which is infectious to those around him. He has an unparalleled ability to communicate with people, whether he is speaking in a room of three or an arena of 30,000. He has built great relationships throughout his life, and he treats everyone with respect. He is brilliant with a great sense of humor and an amazing ability to make people feel special and aspire to be more than even they thought possible. I wish someone would say this kind of thing about me. Also, you have to admit, there is some truth to it, especially the part about making people aspire to be more than they thought possible. That's absolutely accurate. You think Rex Tillerson, CEO of ExxonMobil, thought he could be Secretary of State before Trump said so? Or that Ben Carson thought he could apply his skills as a surgeon to running the Department of Housing and Urban Development? You think Jared Kushner thought he could heal the rift between the Israelis and the Palestinians, bring about criminal justice reform, improve U.S. relations with China and Mexico, and try to establish a secret line of communication with the Russians without Trump encouraging him? No way. These guys were nothing before Trump looked them in the eye, gave him his little wink, and said, you can do whatever you want. Like the rest of the Trump cabinet, these guys would be lost, depressed, mired in self-loathing without Trump around to build them up with his famously magnetic personality and his positive energy. The guys Gatsby, Channing Tatum, Coach Taylor rolled into one. The fact that he's also Eric Hartman and Fredo from The Godfather, that just makes his aura more potent. Seriously, though, you have to wonder who Hope Hicks thought she was convincing with this statement. Then again, the answer might just be her boss. Coming up, I will spiel about the difficulty of talking about Trump news with your loved ones and not feeling like a total cornball while doing it. But first, here's David Rosenthal of Blue Rider Press.
So I met David when I was in my early 20s. I was working at the New York Observer as a publishing reporter, which meant keeping track of what books were being sold, which editors were being fired and hired, and which agents were most consistently racking up big deals. David seemed to me a giant in his field. Just a few of the writers in his stable at Simon & Schuster were Bob Woodward, Doris Kearns Goodwin, David McCullough, Hunter S. Thompson, Bob Dylan, David Carr. Unlike a lot of other people in the industry, David was often willing to give an on-the-record quote, and he wasn't shy about being funny and cutting while answering my questions. In 2010, when I wrote about him getting fired from Simon & Schuster, I started my little story by saying, Talking to David Rosenthal on the phone is stressful. He makes you want to be completely on top of your game, to fluently match him in hilarious one-liners, and to project total confidence. You really want him to think you're cool. And after a while, you just accept that he's always going to make the last joke. So, David, uh, I was writing about you in 2010 when you were canned. How long had you been running Simon & Schuster at that point? Canned. I think I was uh, expired was what happened. But um, I think I was there for just about 12 years. So it was uh, a very good long run there. It feels like another era. It feels, you know, sort of like um, somewhere between Bartleby the Scribner and uh, New Grub Street. (laughs) (laughs) And it probably feels like another era because I moved on. Well, we just we just figured you had been disappeared. <laughs> but I'm really glad to see that you're still alive and kicking and uh this is this is comforting. It really is. So so it was in 2010 that you started your own imprint uh at Penguin, right? The beginning of 2011 we started in January. So we've been going for 6 and a half years. What we've tried to do at the imprint is um the hardcover Blue Rider is to be extraordinarily eclectic getting any book to break out now that either doesn't have a television tie-in, a mm-hmm. YouTube tie- tie-in. You say YouTube? YouTube. What's a book with a YouTube tie-in? These are people who are YouTube stars and have their own YouTube channel. It may initiate with a podcast, but a lot of their eyeballs are coming on YouTube. A podcast like this? A, holy shit, this could work. I could be, uh, you're saying I could be a YouTube star and then that would be the way I could sell a book. You know, it will help you. <laughs> Keith Oberman has a book coming out this fall, an anti-Trump book. That's with you. That's with me. And it's called um, Trump is Fucking Crazy. Trump there. is Fucking Crazy. Wonderful title. And there's a subtitle that says, yes, I'm serious. <laughs> but, you know, Keith is somebody that obviously had television exposure, cable exposure for years, tremendous, but is now doing what essentially is a podcast or a video cast on GQ. So based on uh, the analytics we've seen of how many people are watching Keith as well as the engagement of his viewers is as great as virtually every other cable star in his trophy, mm-hmm. probably, much to our enormous surprise. These have been extraordinarily successful books. And you, can, and you know that they're going to be uh, more of a surefire bet with audiences because you already know they have an audience. They've, they not only have an audience, they have an audience which astounds me with its loyalty. Mm-hmm. They're pre-ordering the book, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. On all of these YouTube stars, before we're on sale day one, we've got three, 4,000 copies in the can. And uh, these days with such segmented culture, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I love them. You mentioned, uh, <laughs> you mentioned this Trump book by, by Olbermann. Are you seeing a lot of proposals coming in from agents that are about Trump? I mean, you know, in, in, in our 
corner of media. Trump is our cash cow who brings us, you know, readers at a volume that we uh, never had before. Is there a similar expectation in the publishing industry? Well, there's that expectation. The number of proposals involving Trump, how the country has been fucked by Trump, how everything is fucked by Trump, how hilarious Trump is, is that that's basically one's whole desk on an average week now. Mm-hmm. It is overwhelming. The paradox of that is that to me, particularly nonfiction sales, are suffering because of Trump right now. Why? Because I think people are going home and watching cable TV and reading you know, uh, their websites, mm-hmm. reading news sites, and figure this is too compulsive a reading to plunk money down for a book. The weirder problem is that we are having trouble, as I know all of my colleagues are, <laughs> breaking through with publicity on books that are real books that are not Trump-related. You mean because newspapers and magazines aren't, 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 and websites aren't covering them because they've uh, too because much Trump they, stuff to, to publish? Yeah, because you're covering Trump. All the shows that did uh, book segments in their news shows, the MS shows, the CNN shows, which have always been great so you get, for books. You, so you can't get coverage on non-Trump books, but you can't get people to buy Trump books because they don't actually want to spend more time thinking about him than they already are. Don't know, because a lot of those books are still in proposal form. And a lot of them are landing in October, November, right right around election time, on the anniversary of the purge. (laughs) And, um, you know, we'll see what happens. And we have the Oberman book. Our sister imprint, uh, Penguin Press, has the book by Alec Baldwin and Kurt Anderson. uh, Together? Together. Together at last. (laughs) Everybody is just dying to give Trump for Christmas. My intuition would be that People will not want to invite Trump into their heads in the way that a book for, sort of forces someone uh, into your consciousness when you actually sit down and read it for a week, uh, a week straight. I don't buy Trump. It, it's. <laughs> I think it's. It remains to be seen what's going to happen. I mean, there are people who cannot get enough, and I think there's definitely going to be fatigue setting in. There is also that maybe it's an optimistic problem if by the fall. <laughs> Trump is really in trouble or, you know, in an impeachment situation or a real Justice Department thing. We have all these President Trump parody books and holy shit, you know, we should be doing Mike Pence books right now. It's like the reverse problem of when all these nonfiction books were slated to come out after the election with the assumption that Hillary Clinton would be president and they, what, they had to be rewritten uh, or at least tweaked. I I actually, I actually thought that Slate should take, um, a bunch of books that clearly were written with that assumption in mind and then highlight all the little changes that had to be made in order to uh, to reflect our reality. And in, collecting, collecting those superficial and desperate changes would be quite funny. What I find amazing is that usually six months after a presidential, there are a ton of books coming out on the, you know, the postmortems of the election and whatnot. And this year, yes, many were stopped in their tracks by the results. And the one that's really come out strong, the one is uh, that book Shattered, mm-hmm. which is really a you know a bit of a Hillary hit job as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a vacuum, which hopefully the anti-Trump books will fill. And then there are going to be a lot of election books. But the question is, why Hillary lost? Will that be as much fun as it were in middle of 2018 as it would be with, you know, why Trump went to jail? <laughs> why is Trump wearing an orange jumpsuit? <laughs> Uh, the, the events are cascading at a rate where if there was ever a time that books seem slow in the uptake by the very nature of what they are, 
this seems to be one of those times. I mean, you can't remember last Monday's New York Times headline. Right. What is what is that phrase pollsters use? Low information voters. Mm -hmm. And that may come into play here, even with people who are normally very well-read voters, because who can remember all this shit? <laughs> is there an expectation that sort of people in the, tr the Trump orbit, people who are part of the story will eventually um, kind of come out of the woodwork and, and you know, do the tell-all of, of what was really happening? Uh, they'll do a tell-some. <laughs> I think it depends on who gets thrown under the bus, because mm -hmm. those are always your first, you know, your, your first responders, as they say. <laughs> and then who needs money for legal fees? <laughs> those are the two big uh, aspects of the, uh, of the memoir equation. Are there agents who specialize in signing those people up and, and putting them out to market? Yes. And it's interesting. Uh, last week, I had four very well-respected agents tell me in conversation how they had just finished writing their letters to Comey about it's time for him to do a book. Who knows? But it's, uh, the, you know, the, the sharks are circling. Yeah. And it's very hard sometimes to reject you know, a big payday when particularly a lot of these people, some of them have been civil servants or working in campaigns and are not, uh, they're not like the Goldman Sachs. I don't think uh, the Trump's Goldman Sachs people are writing books, but there are others who um, may decide it's time to get their story out there so they can send their resume out again without getting laughed at. It's going to be the I didn't do it contingent. Or the if I did it contingent. <laughs> uh David Rosenthal, publisher of Blue Rider Press. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Leon. It's a pleasure to see you, and this has been a lot of fun. Thanks. And if you get me into a lot of trouble, I'll kill you. <laughs> and now the spiel. So I spent Memorial Day weekend in an Airbnb house in upstate New York. A big group of us rented a house in the middle of nowhere with barely any internet, lots of beautiful meadows and mountains to walk around and look at, a big living room where we could sit around until late at night. I was with my wife, Alice, and a bunch of our closest friends, which meant that above all, this was a socially relaxing weekend. These are not people I have any trouble feeling like myself around. Hanging out with them is always easy. It's always natural. I don't ever have to worry that something I've said has landed badly with one of them, or they're not having fun with me even though they say they are, or they're thinking secret thoughts about me of any kind. Above all, these are people who I sound like myself around, by which I mean I don't need to try to make my voice come out a certain way when I speak. They know and get my natural registers. I am legible to them in my authentic state, and I like to think that they're legible to me in theirs. That, by the way, is my profound and original definition of friendship. People you can be yourself around. How about that? Anyway, so we were up in this Airbnb for three days. We played Uno. We watched Wolf of Wall Street on cable with commercials. We tried to get my dog to swim in the pool. It was great. A totally successful Memorial Day weekend. Except, except there was this one thing. Every once in a while, it was like this chill wind would sweep into the house and briefly ruin everything. Now, I don't literally mean that sometimes it got windy, which would not be worth mentioning, though it was quite chilly for most of the weekend. No, I am describing a kind of imaginary room-transforming social gas that someone would like pump into our midst and infect the air around us. And it wasn't just any someone. It was a pretty specific someone. A very famous someone who lives in all of our heads now, and who demands our attention every day, and who has melted the steel beams of history such that we all must think about him all the time. 
I'm talking, of course, about our president, Donald Trump, who came up frequently during our idyllic weekend, even though none of us particularly wanted to talk about him. He was like a genie or something. As soon as his name came up in conversation, it was like he was summoned, like he was right there with us, making his presence felt by violently upsetting that friendly, happy atmosphere I was describing earlier. Trump's arrival had an unmistakable and very specific effect. In an instant, he would cause us all to stop speaking like ourselves. It would happen as soon as we started talking about him, as soon as one of us checked our phone and saw a news alert and told everyone about it, or as soon as someone just had a random thought about him and said it out loud. It was like talking about Trump made our voices come out of our mouths wrong, as if in discussing these current events, we were turning ourselves into generic parrots, repeating stuff we'd read in the papers, heard on TV, and listened to on NPR. Oh man, I said not long after we all woke up on Sunday morning, Trump's tweeting again. What's he saying, my friend asked me. The massive tax cuts reform that I have submitted is moving along in the process very well, actually ahead of schedule. Big benefits to all. Oh, he just got back from his big foreign trip, someone offered. Whenever you see the words sources said in the fake news media, they don't mention names. It is very possible that those sources don't exist, but are made up by fake news writers. Hashtag fake news is the enemy. Oh, he was probably itching to get back to his phone that whole time he was abroad, I said. He was conspicuously disciplined about not tweeting provocative stuff while he was over there. Well, sounds like he's back with vengeance now, said someone else. Okay, well, back to you, Leon, for the weather and traffic report. This has been Friends Talking About Trump. We'll see you next time. Okay, so that was not a direct transcript of the conversation. But you see what I'm getting at, I hope. Trump would turn us all from human beings into news commentators, spouting off warmed-over reactions to the latest dumb thing that happened. Without even meaning to, while trying to express ourselves authentically, we would find ourselves and hear each other using phrases and expressing thoughts we would never otherwise say. A few weeks after Trump's inauguration, the Russian writer Masha Gessen spoke to Slate's Michelle Goldberg about life under autocracy. She spoke from the perspective of someone who had left Putin's Russia for the U.S. three years earlier and could see more clearly than she used to what toll it had taken on her mind. In the last three years, Gessen said, since I got to this country, I realized what a mental price I had paid for living in a state of siege and a state of battle for a decade and a half. Gessen called it intellectually deadening. When you're fighting, you stop learning, she said. You stop reading theory. You stop reading about things that aren't part of the immediate fight. Life under autocracy, in other words, forced everyone to think and talk about the autocrat all the time. By virtue of his power, an autocrat imposes himself into all of our thoughts, forcing us to adopt his vocabulary and inhabit his mind in order to try to understand what he's doing and why. Trump in particular has served as a vulgarizing agent. By virtue of his power and his personality and his misshapen syntax and his coarse view of the world, he has forced all of us to invite a crude blob into our inner lives and then talk about it with the people we love. There are two things I hate about this. One is that I often don't have much to say about Trump. So much of what the administration does is so obviously bad and foolish that it feels pointless to say so. I disagree with the Muslim ban. Congratulations. Very interesting point. Jeff Sessions is dead wrong to try to scale back police reform. Very true, very true. Donald Trump is not competent enough to handle the responsibilities of the presidency. Whoa, well, tell me more about that. I haven't heard that one before. Oof. So uh, that, that's one thing I hate about having Trump around when I'm with my friends. Talking about him is boring, even when he and his people are doing totally deranged, unprecedented things. Because all you can do is disapprove, and there's no real room for reasonable disagreement. The other thing I hate is what I was saying earlier. Literally saying the words I need to say in order to express my boring and predictable opinion makes me feel like I'm engaged in shoddy, dishonest mimicry. There's a Russian word for this, and it's one I think about a lot. Krivlyatsa. It's a word my parents used on me regularly when I was growing up, always in the context of do not do this. Krivlyatsa. It's a verb that has no direct translation in English, 
but it means something in the key of acting cartoonishly in an ugly and inauthentic way. It's often used to describe children who are imitating things they've seen on TV, repeating little phrases they've heard. A good example would be, remember when kids used to say, did I do that in conversation, like copying Urkel from Family Matters? Or when they'd say, do not go in there, whoa, like Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. It happens all the time, and it happens now when kids use the language of memes to communicate with each other. OMG, cool AF, it's so lit. All these stock phrases made up by other people, popularized by large crowds and then adopted by individuals who should, in a better world, be expressing themselves through their own personal language. To engage in krivlyanie, that's the noun form of krivlyatsa, means to be artificial, to ventriloquize someone else, some other type of person, instead of being yourself. That's roughly how I feel when I talk to my wife or my friends about Trump. Even though I'm talking to people who understand me, people who don't need me to contort my voice in order to come across correctly, I feel compelled to resort to words that aren't my own imitating the patter of professional commentary, the beats of other people's observations and arguments that I've read online. The problem, I should say, is not that I or my friends don't have any of our own thoughts about Trump. I have a few. My smart and well-read and articulate friends do too. It's that so much is happening every day that we can't formulate those original thoughts fast enough, and so we turn to the source material that tells us what's going on. We can feel in our bones that Trump is in trouble, but we don't know what that means in practical terms what it means for Republicans in Congress or the voters they're answerable to in their home districts, unless we read the New York Times or Vox or Slate. And we just repeat that stuff when we're called upon to offer insight because it's the best we have. It's the same reason why, you know, in a big protest in the street, a few slogans emerge as the crowd favorites and they get returned to over and over again. No wall, no fear, refugees are welcome here. It's a nice sentiment, but it's a cliche. And the reason everyone can agree to chant it is that even though it sounds like none of us it sounds like the kind of thing a crowd should chant. Now, I have to disappoint here because I don't think there's any good solution to this problem. What are we supposed to do? Just not talk about Trump? Are protesters supposed to go out and say their own unique lines and just shout them individually until you can't make out any of the words people are saying? Or should they just not show up at all? Obviously, they should keep showing up. And obviously, we are stuck talking about Trump. And we are stuck talking about him in a language that is not our own, which makes us feel less like individuals than mass-produced talking heads. The contrast between that feeling and hanging out with my dearest friends this weekend really sharpened this point for me. It made me realize that even in a cabin in the woods where we couldn't even get Netflix to play because the Wi-Fi didn't work well enough, Trump is still going to be there in the air around us, reminding us that even for us, people who are not immediately affected by most of his policies, life will not be the same until this all somehow ends. It's a good reminder. Like it or not, we're going to have to keep talking about this guy for as long as we live. May it never start to come naturally. That is it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produced The Gist, and when they talk about Trump, they turn into frogs. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and luckily for him, he turns into a prince. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and he finds talking about Trump extremely comfortable and fun. Thanks to Mike Pesca for letting me host today, and come back tomorrow to hear my colleague Aisha Harris. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Let me just do like a couple of like rapid-fire questions that don't really fit into... This the lightning round? Yeah, lightning round. <laughs> 